Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. John chapter thirteen. I got that posted now. So just so you guys know, if you are at home and you're not on Facebook, if you don't have a Facebook account, you can still view our live Bible study. It's going to be on our our webpage on JewishAwareness.org, and you can you can watch it from there. So that's what I was doing setting up the one that's currently going, because I'm usually back there setting it up. Um, Okay, so John chapter 13. Last lesson, we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, or within the last couple of lessons, we split John chapter 12 into two lessons. Uh, But specifically, the Pharisees' reaction uh, of anger, albeit many of the chief rulers, even though the Pharisees were angry and they were deriding Jesus and, you know, tell your disciples to hold their peace. even though the Pharisees were so angry, many of the chief rulers got saved. Many of the chief rulers believed in Jesus as their savior. And so, um, but they did it secretly because it says that they were fearful of the Jews. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. Um, There were Greeks who had come up to the feast. Now, what feast is this? Passover. Passover. Okay, this is the last Passover. This is uh, the last Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's in Jerusalem. And there were Greeks that came up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And Jesus speaks to them, focusing on his relationship to his father and also his mission of saving the world through his death. This is becoming in the forefront of everything that he is saying and teaching, having to do with, I'm going to die. I'm going to uh, die for the sins of the world. I'm going to not be with you in this earthly fashion for very much longer. Now we are at the Passover, and let's look at chapter 12, just to kind of catch up to chapter 13. Let's look at the last couple of verses of of chapter 12, uh, starting in verse number 44, just to get some context here. John 12, 44, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. Now Jesus is always referring to himself, especially in the book of John. We see Jesus constantly referring to his relationship with his father, in the way that he acts and the things that he does and the things that he says, always being exactly what the Father wants him to say and do and and act, okay? Uh, And Jesus' authority, remember, is at the crux of John. It's the uh, main driving focus of the book of John, the authority that Jesus has. And so he says in verse number 45, And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, and whoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Now there's lots of people that would like to just take that verse out of context, leave it by itself and say, see, I don't have to believe in Jesus, I'm going to be fine. Um, 
But look at what the next couple of verses say. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. You're not going to escape judgment by refusing uh, Jesus. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father hath said unto me, I speak. So Jesus is intrinsically linked with the Father. They are one. The Father is in heaven. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is, we can say it this way, the person of the Father in a human body. Okay? And we speak of that in the language of the Father and the Son. Um, but they are one in a way that's uh, almost hard for us to describe because we don't really have anything that adequately pictures that you know, oneness of the Trinity. But let's look at verse 1 of chapter 13. You have it there in your notes. And by the way, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to get through this whole thing uh, tonight. I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to speak like an auctioneer, if I can help it. And we'll see if we can get through uh, at a good pace. Okay, so now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. So this is before the feast of Passover. Jesus is uh, thinking about and contemplating on this being the end of his earthly ministry. And that he's going to leave this world and go unto the Father. And then it says, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now something interesting, I have a note here. The Greek text behind this passage, I looked at what the Greek said for this verse, and it's a little bit different of a word order, which, I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but it gives me a little bit different of a nuance, a little bit different of a sense of what's being said, just because the word order uh, can make a little bit of a difference in how something is understood. It might have a little bit of a different uh, meaning. Uh, and it's the same words, but in the, in the order of the, uh, of the original text, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, knowing Jesus, that has come his hour, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, to the end he loved them. Now that's kind of what I wanted to focus on in that whole statement there, is those last words. Because when we read, you know, verse 1, and especially when we're starting a chapter, we just tend to just, okay, let me get to verse 2. And we just skim right over it. And, you know, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them, uh, he loved them unto the end. And it's like, okay, uh, I kind of understand what that's saying. But for me, for some reason, looking at it in the original word order, especially that last phrase, to the end, he loved them. Basically, to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, to his last act, to his last week, to his last year, Less than 24 hours, he's going to be dead. Okay, He's going to have died on the cross in less than 24 hours from this point. Um, unto the end, what is he doing? He's not caring about himself. He's not doing his own agenda. He's doing what the Father wants him to do, but he is in every single action, in every single breath, everything that he does in these last moments, he is continuing to love his own. Now, that brings me to the next uh, question here. Who is his own? When it says, having loved his own which are in the world, what and who is he talking about? Now, we can't know for certain, I don't think, um, but we can have a pretty good idea. And there's a couple of different things that kind of are all encompassed in this idea of his own. So I don't think we can say, well, he's talking about the Jews. Well, he's talking about the disciples. I think that he's talking about both. Okay? Um, here, look what I have to say here. It's definitely including the disciples here. 
but there's certainly a sense of this term also speaking of his people, the Jews. John 1, 10 and 11, and by the way, who wrote John 1? The same guy that wrote John 13, right? <laughs> the same guy, okay. So he uses the same terminology to speak of the Jews in John chapter 1, where it says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But in chapter 13, verse 1, having loved his own which are in the world, he loved them unto the end. And so we are about to see in the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry a playing out of John 13:1, that basically saying he loved them unto the end, his own which were in the world. And by the way, the disciples, they were all Jewish as well, you know? So there's kind of an overlap there. He loves those that would trust in him and follow him, his disciples, which is all of us, whether we're Jew or Gentile. And also the Jewish people that believed and the Jewish people that didn't believe, you know? Um, he loves them. He loved them unto the end. Um, so in the specific context of this moment, Jesus is about to do what Jesus is about to do, what we're about to see in the rest of John 13, shows us an example of how, to the end, he loved them. Okay, we're about to see an example of how he loved them to the end. And so supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So, between verse 1 and verse 2, we have the Passover supper. Okay, John doesn't go into detail like some of the other gospel accounts do, in, for instance, talking about the bread talking about the cup and those different things that Jesus mentioned in the other Gospels that are recorded. That happens, but it's between verse 1 and 2 here in John. And so supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about Judas here because this chapter, although it focuses on some things that Jesus did in showing an example of his love to his disciples, Another focus of this chapter is the person of Judas. And so I'm going to talk about him a little bit. Few people have come to a point in their lives where they knew that they had less than 24 hours to live. Like Brother Glenn back there, you know. If he would have known for sure uh, that he would have, okay, I know that this is my end. It would have been kind of a really odd situation, you know, a very unique, special situation, and probably not one that would be very enjoyable, you know, knowing that you have less than 24 hours to live. Um, Jesus knew everything. He knew Judas would betray him from the moment that he chose him as an apostle. Jesus has less than 24 hours to live in this earthly world, in his earthly body, and he knows it. And so things are kind of compounding here. In John chapter 6, and this is kind of uh, being a, um, a description or uh, kind of more of a specific example of how we know that Jesus knew Judas would betray him from the beginning. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him even before he chose him as an apostle, as a disciple. In John chapter 6, verses 63 to 64, and 70 to 71. Now this is something that we've looked at. I don't know how long ago it was, maybe a, maybe a year ago, but look at this from John chapter 6. Jesus said, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. 
The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. Okay? That's a, 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 a solid statement made by Jesus. There are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And then he says this, and I think it's verse 71, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now is Jesus just kind of, you know, rattling around that there's this like Russian roulette thing, there's so many chambers, and, and, and one of you, I don't know, one of you though, is a devil. No, Jesus has a very specific person in mind when he says that. He's thinking exactly of Judas because he knew it from the beginning. And we know these things, we know that Jesus is God, we know that he's omniscient, that he knows all things. But it's good for us to kind of knock that back into our brain because it likes to just, I don't know, things that we're so familiar with, we sometimes are so familiar with them that we miss the forest for the trees. Um, I don't want us to do that tonight. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. And then in John chapter 17, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we've mentioned this verse in conjunction with when we were going through John chapter 6. John 17, 12, Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me have I kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so one of those 12 was lost. And so I have a couple points here. What's the deal with Judas? Let's, let, let's learn some things about Judas, you know? Get, get it, the record straight. Because there's lots of people out there I mean, there's like a gospel of Judas that tries to say that Judas was trying to, you know, he wanted people to be saved. He wanted Jesus to die on the cross so that Jesus could be the salvation of the world, and he was helping Jesus to do that, and he was really a good guy. That's what the, the uh, what do you call it? Here's a big word for you, pseudopographic, okay? <laughs> Meaning false gospel. Uh, it's a fancy word for false gospel, the gospel of Judas. There's another guy who wrote a book that, ugh, uh, most of the stuff that he says in there is good, but he said this one thing that just, it just irked me, having to do with Judas. And his opinion was that Judas really wasn't, you know, an evil, wicked, you know, whatever, but that he was aware of the Messianic prophecies. And he almost sounds like he's in line with the Gospel of Judas idea, which is not biblical at all. That's completely contradictory to what we have in the Bible. So let's look at a couple of bold points about Judas. Number one, he was a lost unbeliever. Judas was not a Christian, okay? He was not a believer. He was a disciple in the sense that he was chosen by Jesus. He was a disciple in the sense that he physically followed Jesus around, but he was lost. He was not saved. He was an unbeliever. And we just read the verses that describe that. One of you is lost. There are some of you that don't believe. Uh, you know, um, none of them is lost but the son of perdition. Judas is a lost unbeliever. Secondly, he was chosen by Jesus to be one of the twelve. And we read that verse as well in John chapter 6 and verse 70. Uh, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. I gave a reference there to uh, Luke chapter 6, where it lists the disciples. It says Jesus called unto himself twelve disciples in Luke chapter 6, and Judas is in that list. Now, almost every single time that Judas is mentioned in the Bible, almost every single time, it has this phrase that comes after his name is mentioned. And the phrase that comes after the name Judas is, 
which also betrayed Jesus. The one that betrayed Jesus. And uh, when that phrase isn't mentioned, is usually in the narrative where Judas is in the process of betraying Jesus. And so he's just scarred for, you know, his name is just forever associated with that thing. Um, okay. Also, he was the treasurer. He was the treasurer of the group. Now, you may have hear, heard people uh, reference passages in the scripture where it says, you know, he, he held the bag, he held the purse, he held the, he held the money bag. Well, it's more than just, okay, he's the you know, pack mule that we have holding our money. He was in charge of the money. He was like what we would call today a treasurer of the group. He took care of the group's finances, and more importantly, he was entrusted with the group's finances. Uh, John chapter 12 in verse 6, which we haven't exactly read yet. Oh no, yes we have. I'm thinking of chapter 13. <coughs> Look at verse 6 of chapter 12. Uh, go back up to verse 4. John 12, 4. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. See, it's always mentioned there. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? You remember that? Yeah. Okay. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare that which was put therein. I find it interesting, and I think maybe I mentioned this... Uh, I guess I'm, yeah, never mind. I mentioned it on the next page. Don't go ahead yet. Okay. Now, this is an interesting point. I've mentioned this before, but I wanted to kind of give you some detail about this, a little bit of a, a history lesson, which is, which is interesting. Uh, and our friend Saul is here, right? And he can kind of correct me if this is correct with uh, Spanish or not. So he was possibly one of the Sicarii. How many of you have heard of the Sicarii before? Okay, if you haven't, okay, good, because you're going to learn about them tonight, okay? So the Sicarii was a splinter group of the Jewish zealots, okay, in the first century, the time when Rome had rule over Israel, who in the decades preceding Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD strongly opposed the Roman occupation of Judea and attempted to expel them and their sympathizers from the area, okay? So the Sicarii were very zealous Jewish uh, people who hated the Roman occupation. They hated with, with uh, just, uh, just a great um, zealousness the Roman soldiers, the Roman occupation, and anybody, anybody, anybody who would sympathize with Rome. Anybody that would be okay with Rome. Anybody that was like, okay, you know, I'm all right with you guys being here. The Sicarii hated them. Okay? Uh, the Sicarii carried, I don't know if I'm saying this right, a, a psyche or a psyche or known as small daggers, okay? That's what a seike meant, a dagger. Uh, concealed in their cloaks. You guys ever heard of like cloak and dagger? Okay, this is quite possibly where that idea originated from, okay? Because it was literally a dagger, literally concealed by a, a cloak. At public gatherings, they pulled out these daggers to attack Romans and Hebrew Roman sympathizers alike. Blending into the crowd after the deed, to escape detection. The Sicarii are regarded as one of the earliest known organized assassination units of cloak and daggers. Okay? They weren't just some political group. They weren't just some zealous group. They were assassins. They were killers. And I thought this was interesting. Listen to this. Predating the Islamic Hashishin 
and the Japanese ninja by centuries. So does that mean that the Sakari were like ninjas? Well, they were assassins, okay? They were Jewish assassins in the first century. And they weren't like uh, hired assassins, but they were just um, so aligned against Rome politically, ideologically, and, and, and they were not good people. They were not nice people. Um, and they, they, they killed people. They were killers. The Spanish term Sicario, used in contemporary Latin America, is synonymous with a hitman working for one of the various drug cartels derives from Sicari. This is also explained in the opening of the 2015 film Sicario, which means hitman in Spanish. Am I right, brother? Maybe? Yeah? Okay, I'm getting the nod. All right. And so, um, was Judas one of these? Why do we think that he's one of these? Well, what is his, what is his designation? Judas Iscariot. Okay? That, that designation means one of two things. That he was from an area uh, designating that name, which is unsubstantiated. It's not known for sure. And the other possibility is that he was one of the Sicarii, and that's why he is called Judas Iscariot. Iscariot is not his father's name. What's his father's name? Simon. Simon. Okay. So Judas was possibly one of these cloak and dagger guys. Literally, cloak and dagger. Um, anyway, maybe that gives you a little bit better of a description of who Judas may have been. He was a thief. Uh, in John 12, 6, he was actually stealing money from the bag. Okay. We have in black and white, in John 12, verse 6, that he was a thief. Does this sound like a guy that has good intentions, that just gets caught up in the wrong way, that just gets used against his will by Satan to betray Jesus? No. He is a wicked man, out of the own devices of his wicked heart, uh, submits himself to Satan's use, and does what he does. Now, this I thought was interesting, this next point. You can turn the page over, uh, number six, about Judas. No one suspected him. We get this idea, at least I get this idea, when I read through scripture without really examining these things, that Judas was like always this shifty-eyed guy that everybody was like, oh, there's Judas, you know. Out of the 12, they look over at him and think, oh, you know, if anybody's going to betray Jesus, it's that guy. Do you know that the opposite is true? Nobody, 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 nobody thought Judas was going to betray Jesus. Nobody thought he was a bad guy. Nobody thought he was wicked. Um, now, look at this. This is very interesting, and I never thought about this till I heard somebody mention it. Matthew, what was he previously, before he got called to be a disciple? What was his occupation? A tax collector. What do tax collectors handle? What do they deal with? Money. And yet, yeah, and yet, he was not chosen to be the treasurer. Huh. Judas was. You realize that Judas had impeccable character, at least on the surface. He looked like a guy that you should trust with your money. <laughs> and so when people looked at Judas, when the disciples looked at Judas, I don't know if Jesus appointed him, you know, you're going to be the guy that is the treasurer of the group, you're going to be the one that carries the bag, or if the disciples just, you know, well, let's, let's give it to Judas. I mean, you know, I don't know if we can trust the tax collector, but we can trust, we can trust this guy, and they give him the bag. I don't know, however it was done, Nobody suspected him. Nobody had a problem with Judas carrying all the money of the group. Um, he had a facade 
of impeccable character. Um, and we'll get to those verses in a little bit, maybe. Uh, at the end of John 13, it proves my point that nobody suspected Judas. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Now, point number seven, and I want us to realize this. He had a choice. Judas had a choice. Just like you have a choice to believe in Jesus or not, and I have a choice to believe in Jesus or not. Uh, this is where John MacArthur gets it all wrong. And, you know, John had a lot of good things, John MacArthur, had a lot of good things to say about this passage because he's, he's one of the preachers that, um, I guess I could say, famously is known for preaching through John. And yet, he's dead wrong about this, this idea of Judas being forced against his will to do these things. In reference to what uh, Judas was about to do, this is, this is verbatim, this is a quote from John MacArthur. He states, he had to do it. He had no choice. Sovereign God. That is not true at all. Okay? Judas was a wicked person. Yes? That just doesn't even make sense. I mean, if he had no choice, then he wouldn't be guilty. I mean, it's... And that goes for all of us. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a choice to have guilt. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of things that don't make sense if you follow that line of thinking that he had no choice that we have no choice. Now. Well, I think the problem is that it says the devil entered him. Well, that's true, but, but. Well, I mean, it's the implication is that the devil is the one making the decisions here. Well. I mean, I don't, I'm not arguing that that's the case. Sure, sure. That's what's sort of a little bit of a, a MacArthur, you know, a, 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 I understand, I understand, but he's saying that it was God's doing. Uh, yes, we'll, we'll get to the questions. It reminded me of uh, what Peter said to Ananias or Sapphira, one of the two. He said, why have you suffered uh, Satan to enter your heart? Mm. You allowed Satan to enter your heart. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. Satan, if Satan enters your heart, that doesn't mean you had no choice. Yeah. He overcame you. Yeah. You, you did allow that. Yeah. Well, he, he did um, earlier already make that deal with to, to betray Jesus. I mean, he had, had already made that deal and then taken the 30 pieces of silver, hadn't he, at this point? I don't believe so. At least not in, the, at least not in this narrative. I'm pretty sure he already had that deal made before the Passover. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll double check that and get back to you. But one thing that I want to focus on is that when Jesus says, I have chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil, you know what I'm saying? According to his foreknowledge, meaning he knew before, okay, Jesus didn't choose these 12. He didn't choose Judas and then say, okay, Judas, you're going to be the one that's going to betray me. He knew beforehand from eternity past, okay, that Judas would out of his own choice and out of his own will betray Jesus. And like Tom said, allow Satan to enter himself. Okay? He's open to this thing. I mean, people, I don't know if you realize that today, okay, people open themselves up to demonic oppression and possession. There's a testimony of uh, this one lady, she's a Jewish lady, and she was getting involved in all kinds of witchcraft and Wicca and different kind of mysticism. Uh, one of the things was um, astral projection, okay, meaning you make it so that you're uh, I'll get to you in, in, in a second, um, 
And don't let me forget, in case I forget. <laughs> um, but anyway, getting into all of these things, opening herself up to spiritual things, not spiritual as in the Bible, but spiritual as in, you know, mystical, magical, uh, demonic. I want to I, I open myself up to these things, you know, like a seance kind of a thing. And people open themselves up to that. Um, anyway, you were going to say? Um, yeah, Luke 22, uh, chapter 22, starting verse 3. Um, that, well, I'll start with the first one. Now, the piece of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And chief priests and the scribes thought how they might uh, kill him, for they feared the people. Then uh, Satan and the Jews surrendered a uh, surname to Scary, and was numbered among the twelve. So one is way to confirm the chief priests and captains how he might betray uh, him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him the money, and so on and so forth. Gotcha. And this, is, and, and this is before the Passover? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, what's interesting, there's a couple of different um, statements regarding Judas. Um, in verse number 2 of chapter 13, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, uh, to betray him, okay? When, when, I'll put it this way. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, okay, and our brother John was right about that, that Judas made this arrangement before that feast of the Passover. Um, but when Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden by Satan, did Satan force either one of them to eat of that fruit? No, he did not. Okay, And yet, we can almost say that Satan put in their heart to eat of the tree. They still made the choice, okay? but they were tempted by him. I mean, he put the thought in their head, yea, hath God said, and they decided out of their own will to listen to him rather than God that said, don't eat of it or touch it because in the day you eat of it, you're going to die. Um, anyway, man has free will, and I don't believe at all that, that Judas is an exception to that. And I don't believe that Pharaoh, you guys know how Pharaoh, his heart was hardened, okay? Uh, to, to say, I will not let your people go. Time after time after time after time, God hardened his heart. Does that mean that against Pharaoh's will, God says, you will disobey me, you will uh, reject me? Does God do that? Does God say that? The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was kind of like, God allowed Pharaoh to continue down the path that he had chosen. You know what I'm saying? Um, God solidified Pharaoh's resolve. I'll put it that way. God solidified Pharaoh's resolve, which was already just dead set against Moses and against the God of Israel. And so he would get the glory. But he didn't, he didn't take Pharaoh's free will and throw it in the trash. Okay? Pharaoh was already completely against, you know, who is this God? I don't know him, um, and so on. But anyway, um, what, I, what I wanted to say in continuing this point number seven here, uh, when MacArthur states he had to do it, he had no choice, sovereign God, um, I don't believe at all that that's the case. I believe it was kind of like a partnership between Judas and Satan, okay? It wasn't a uh, Satan robbing Judas of his free will, but it was a cooperative effort. And a cooperative effort that Jesus knew about from the beginning 
a cooperative effort that God knew would happen in the course of events that would cause his son to be crucified. And he still allowed it to happen. Um, and I want to finish this statement here. Judas was a wicked, sinful, lost man who was chosen by Jesus according to his foreknowledge of what Jesus would do. Okay? And there's people all over this world. Uh, Satan so badly wants to get a foothold in not only the lives of those that are lost, okay? I mean, he's already got them. Um, but he wants believers. He's not going to leave you alone now that you said, I believe in Jesus, I'm trusting in him for my salvation. Does Satan leave you alone when you do that? No, not at all, okay? Um, he wants you to question. He wants you to doubt. He wants you to worry. He wants you to fear. He wants you to give in to sin. Um, all these different things that he wants you to do. Um, and so maybe we'll learn some more things about Judas as we go along <clears throat> and see these things play out. But some very good questions. Any other questions or comments before we continue? Okay. So in verse number three, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, <clears throat> he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Have any of you guys ever washed somebody's feet before? Okay. I have an interesting story. The very first Passover that I ever attended in my entire life, ever, was the one that I was asked to lead. Because, hey, you're Jewish, right? You know? And so after that Passover, and it was college students, we got together off campus, um, and uh, I think there was probably about a dozen of us, maybe. Um, no, no coincidence there, but... <laughs> What happened was we decided that after the Passover that we would wash each other's feet and following this, you know, this thing. Um, anyway, so uh, Jesus, what he does, he removes his outer garments. He wraps a towel around himself. Uh, what he's doing here is rightfully an example for all believers to serve others. Now I'm going to get to the crux of what this means because it is an example for all believers. But there's something even more, even deeper, behind it. But in the larger context of John, and, and like I said, if you want to look at verse 15 uh, real quick, or if you have your Bible in front of you, uh, John chapter 13 and verse 15, uh, Jesus says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. So it is an example for all believers. It's an example here for the disciples that you should do as I have done unto you. But there's a larger picture uh, in my notes here for verse number 5. In the larger context of John, specifically chapter 10, verses 7 to 18. Let's, let's look at that for a second. Okay? Keep your finger there in John 13 and go back to John chapter 10, verse number 7. John chapter 10 and verse number 7. Then said Jesus unto them again, and he's speaking to uh, the Judean religious crowd, okay? Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Do you know who Jesus is attacking here? Who Jesus is pointing the finger at? The rabbinical leadership. Okay? Uh, the Judean religious crowd. Those that are the 
evil, wicked shepherds of the people, the shepherds that don't care about the flock, the shepherds that run away when a wolf or a thief come, that don't know the sheep, that don't care for them. He says, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling is not the shepherd, <clears throat> whose own sheep are not, uh, whose own the sheep are not. Seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scatters them. The hiring fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I care for the sheep. I give my life for the sheep. But all the other ones that came before me, they're wicked. They're selfish. All they care about is themselves, and they are not the true shepherd of Israel. I am the true shepherd of Israel. So, with that context in mind, <clears throat> turn back to John chapter 13. Finish our notes here for verse number 5. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, Israel. As opposed to the Judean religious leaders who only cared about themselves and being served. You see, they didn't care about serving people. They would never be caught dead doing this, okay, washing other people's feet. They'd be like, you know, they'd just like slip off their sandals and be like, all right, come, you know, servant, come wash my feet. Okay, they wouldn't be doing what Jesus did here. They'd be doing the opposite. And so there is a larger picture, although the specific context is the disciples. It's kind of uh, a stark contrast to how the Jewish religious crowd acted. The false shepherds, the wicked shepherds that cared not for the sheep. Jesus cares for the sheep. How does he show that he cares for the sheep? Well, he eventually is going to give his life for the sheep. But even right here, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And this is how he loved them. He shows them by washing their feet. And there's some great symbolism there. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. We're going to find out the symbolism in a second. <clears throat> Peter says to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. So what, we, what can we learn from Peter sticking his foot in his mouth again? Okay, <clears throat> Which happened often with Peter. His declaration is one of pride, <clears throat> disguised as humility. Do you know it takes humility to allow somebody to serve you? Okay, um, In this sense at least. Now the Pharisees, when they were served in that way, they didn't have any humility at all, okay? But if you're somebody that's a very, very giving person, okay, you can give anybody, you can give just fine. But what happens when a very, very giving person that is just so used to giving is on the receiving end? It's kind of awkward, isn't it? It's kind of sometimes difficult. For somebody that's a great giver, sometimes it's hard to, to take a gift. No, I don't, want, I, I, I don't want you to have to do that for me, you know? Almost to the point of arguing. And so Peter here is, oh, no problem. Okay. So Peter here is arguing with Jesus. And it's kind of like a false humility. Because if he was truly humble, he would say, 
you're the Lord. You can do whatever you want to do. And yet he objects to Jesus doing what Jesus was wanting and desiring to do. I mean, Jesus comes over to him with a, with a, with a you know, pail, a, a basin of water and, and, and a towel. And Peter says, uh-uh, you're not washing my feet. You know, it's a false humility. Because, uh, you know, sometimes it takes humility for us to come to God. It takes humility, as it says in 1 Peter, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. So it takes humility to cast our care upon God. It takes humility to come to God and say, help me. It takes humility to say, okay, God, I'm giving it all to you. And that's kind of the opposite of what, ironically, Peter <laughs> is, is showing forth here. And Peter's the one that says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So he has a, a declaration of pride disguises humility. When God wants to provide for you in a certain way, or use you in a way that you feel unqualified for, it's an insult to him to refuse. If you feel like God is calling you to do something, okay, and his word and his spirit have kind of uh, confirmed that in your heart, for you to say, ah, I can't do that. I'm not qualified to do that. Now, I'm not talking about like a biblical unqualification for a certain thing, okay? But in reference to, I don't feel like I can do that. I'm just not good enough. If God calls you to do something and you refuse and you say, oh, I'm just not good enough, having the false humility, right? False humility. That's an insult to God. If he's called you to do something, if he asks you to do something, even if you feel like you're unqualified or not good enough, Step up to the plate. If God's called you to do it, you know, faithful is he that calleth you, calleth you who also will do it, the Bible says. <clears throat> and so, something else that we can learn from Peter. What Jesus wants to do with, number three, in and through you is more important than any false humility you selfishly want to hold on to, which is what Peter is doing here. Also, this is interesting. Peter says in verse 8, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Number four, under verse eight, avoid never statements when it comes to God doing something in and through and with your life. God could never do that with me, you know? I mean, you know, okay, this is just an example, okay? Hypothetical situation. And God has not called me to pastor, okay? He's called me to do exactly what I'm doing now. Evangelism to the Jewish people training and equipping and teaching the church about the need to reach the Jewish people with the gospel. But if I were to say, I could never be a pastor, is that limiting God? Yes, it is. Okay. And so if you say, I could never teach Sunday school, I could never do that. I could never, you know, fill in the blank. I could never knock on a door and give somebody a tract. I could never hand somebody a, a gospel tract at a checkout. I could never ask somebody you know, next to me on the bus, if you die today, do you know you'd go to heaven? I could never do that. That's a never statement. Just as Peter's, you're never going to wash my feet. And what did Jesus say? He says, if, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Um, and so there's a kind of a, um, a beseeching for us to draw closer to Jesus because what Peter is doing is pushing him away. There is kind of a, um, a challenge for us 
to draw closer to Jesus in acceptance of his will for our life and allowing him to do whatever it is that he wants to do with us, to submit. Verse number 9, Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Okay, so Peter's like jumping from one extreme to the other. Um, are any of you guys like Peter? You just, you know, your emotions are on your sleeve. You say whatever you think, and sometimes you wish you could put it back. Uh, I'm not normally like that, but I have had, um, you know, moments of brilliance like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we all can at some point, but some people are more like that than others as well. I mean, Peter has good intentions, okay? Pretty much always, Peter has good intentions. Um, but he's, he's a very vocal person, you know? Um, but anyway, here he's also vocal and says, Lord, not, not, not my feet only, but also my head and my hands. And Jesus says to him, and this is interesting, he that is washed needeth not, to, not, not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. Now that sounds kind of like some of Paul's writings that are kind of confusing, almost sounds like a riddle. This is an object lesson for 1 John 1.9. Okay, what's 1 John 1.9 say? If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, who's us? Is us the world? Is us mankind? Is us? It's, he's talking about believers. He's talking to a, an audience of believers. And so if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is 1 John 1, 9 a verse that has to do with salvation? No. It's a verse that has to do with the believer's fellowship with the Lord. When we have sin between us and God, okay, it causes a separation there. We didn't lose our salvation. We didn't lose the Holy Spirit's presence. But we, we're losing our communication with God. Okay, um, and we're kind of putting an obstacle between him and us and him working in our lives. If you're born again, you don't need your sins atoned for again and again. Okay? And I don't know if any of you have ever ran into like a Seventh-day Adventist or any of those that um, believe you can lose your salvation and you need to get it back and you can lose it again, you need to get it back. You know, um, I spoke to a gentleman in New York City who, uh, it was on a Saturday, and he came up to us, and, or he was walking past us or whatever, and I was going to hand him something. And uh, He was all dressed for church because they go to church on Saturday believing that that's the day that, you're, that you ought to worship. Um, and I talked to him something, I forget what it was that I said, but... He basically said that if you, if you sin, uh, you're, you're lost again. You know, I said, no, that's not biblical. That's not, that's not true. Um, God's going to keep you by his power until the day of redemption. Uh, he's given us and sealed us with the earnest of his spirit. Um, but anyway, you don't need to get saved again. 1 John 1, 9 is, 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 is a foot washing, okay, in the language of John 13. It's, it's getting your feet washed. You don't need to have your head and your hands washed, Peter. He says, if you're washed, all you need to, all you need to really cleanse is your feet. Um, but, you know, you're clean entirely, but not all of you. And he spoke of, of, of Judas there. Um, and so we do need a regular, a daily and regular cleansing as we walk through this fallen world. Now, we're more familiar with washing our hands regularly, right? If I asked you how many of you washed your feet before you ate dinner, or did you wash your feet after using the bathroom? You know, we don't, 
We don't do that. We don't do foot washing here in 21st century America, really, um, unless you're getting like a pedicure or something. <laughs> but we do hand washing, okay? I'm always asking my kids, they come out of the bathroom, did you remember to wash your hands? I see the gears turning, oh, and they'll go back and they'll wash their hands. Um, that's what we do here in America commonly. We, we don't say, you know, uh, go take a bath, um, you know, before you eat dinner, or go take a bath after using the, the, the restroom. That's simply not the case. We just say, go wash your hands. Now, first century, what got dirty the most was their feet, walking through the dusty, you know, Middle East um, and with their sandals. And so their feet were constantly dirty. And um, he says, Peter, if you've had a bath, you don't need to wash your whole body again. You just need to wash your feet. And like, like we would say, wash your hands. Like I tell our kids, you know, to use sanitizer, hand sanitizer. They call it sanitizer. Um, to keep their hands clean, right? Um, that's all you need. Uh, a good paraphrase would be, he that is bathed only needs to wash his feet but it's totally clean. And y'all, do you know that ye is like the old English version of y'all? Okay, it's plural. It's plural you, y'all. Y'all are clean, except not all of you. Okay, not all y'all. Okay, um, I don't know. Maybe the uh, writers of the Bible were, were Southerners. Um, but anyway, so I want to show you something really neat about this passage that, that, that brings clarity to it. And uh, I want to share this with you. There are those that say that you don't need to really study the Greek and the Hebrew, but it's good to be able to look it up, even if you just type it in the internet. What does this mean? You know, you don't need to be a scholar. You don't need to know a whole lot. Um, but it's good sometimes uh, to know the background behind some of these words. Like, for instance, here, I have the word washed and then the word wash again in verse number 10. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. Okay? Do you know those are two different Greek words, wash and wash? They're two different words, and they mean uh, a little bit different. There are two different Greek words in this passage. Luo, which means to bathe or to wash, bathe, wash, washing, and nipto, which means to cleanse or to wash. You guys want to try those words? Let's say it together. Luo. Okay, and let's say the other one, nipto. Okay, good. Let's see how they're used in the Bible. The word washed, and referring to the King James Version, appears 37 times in the New Testament. 37 times the word washed. Now that little circle that you have next to you there, that circle represents all 37 times that the, that the word washed is used in the English Bible. That whole circle, 37 times. Six times is luo. Okay? You see that little red section that's the second largest section, the red one? That's luo. Okay? And then 17 times, the one that's used the most in the New Testament is nipto. That's that blue bottom section of that circle there. It's hard to get a feel of how these words are different just by definition. So let's look at how they're used in the Bible. Okay, flip your page over. Actually, it's on the next page. So if you want, you can keep that little diagram there next to page number three. So you can kind of glance back and forth and see this. The first thing we have is the uses of luo, and there's six of them, okay? Six out of 37 times is luo. Let's look at some of these just real quick in passing. John 13, 10, he that is washed, okay? And he's referring there to a whole washing. We would say like taking a bath or a shower, okay? Uh, Acts 9:37 came to pass in those days when she was sick and died, whom they had washed, laid her in an upper chamber. That's a dead body, okay? 
they completely, totally washed the whole body. Okay, that's luo, washed, bathed. Acts 16.33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, and he and all his straightway. Okay, so those that were beaten, those that were um, disciplined, those that were punished, they had their stripes or their wounds washed. When that happens, it's not just like a little, eh, you know. It's like they, they wash basically their whole body, okay? Um, the next verse, Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That's a whole body kind of thing. 2 Peter 2.22, But it's happened unto him, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. How many of you have ever washed a pig before? Okay, you probably don't just wash a pig with a, with a squirt gun. I don't know if Cheryl would, if, if she was here, because she grew up on a pig farm. Uh, but anyway, it's referring to bathing the whole, the whole thing, the whole pig. And what happens after it gets entirely sparkly clean? It goes and jumps back in the mud, right? And then the last verse here, using the word luo, is in Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. When Jesus washed us from our sins, was it just like a little, eh, you know? No, it's, it's, it's entirely, we're completely, totally cleansed from our sins. Now, in contrast to that, look at the 17 verses, uh, uses of nipto. Matthew 6, 17, But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head, and what? Wash, wash your face. Okay? You see the difference? Why do the disciples transgress the transgression of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Matthew 7, or Mark 7, 3, they wash their hands often. John 9, 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then later in that verse, I have it duplicated here, uh, he washed and came seeing. That's that blind man, okay? Jesus put, uh, you know, he spit on the ground and made clay of the spittle and put it in the man's eyes. Remember, we just did that a couple of chapters ago, maybe two years ago, I don't know. Okay, so his eyes are all muddy. And he has to go wash in the pool of Siloam. This is the word nipto. Do you think when he washed his eyes, do you think he just like, you know, dived into the pool of Siloam? No. It wasn't a whole body bath. It was just he was washing the junk off of his eyes. Okay? It's kind of like a localized cleansing, if I can use it that way. Okay? And he relays the same information in John 9, 11. Yeah, he told me to wash, and I went and I washed. And it's the same word nipto that's used. John 19, 15. Uh, he gives the same uh, word again, the blind man. He, he put clay in my eyes, and I washed. And I do see, that's that, you know, just washing of the eyes. In John 13, 5, uh, after that he poureth water in a basin. This is what we just read. And look at the word that's nipto. He poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Okay? It's a localized cleansing. It's a small cleansing. Feet, hands, eyes, face. It's not a whole bath. It's just a little thing. Okay, um, and then uh, chapter 13, verse 6, uh, Lord, does thou wash my feet? Thou shalt never wash my feet, verse 8. Um, and then Jesus says, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part in me. And verse 10 of chapter 13, uh, Jesus says to him, he that is washed. Now, you see that first washed? That first washed is luo. He that has had a bath. He that's just plunged in, he's completely, totally submerged, he's completely clean, He's washed throughout and all over. Luo. 
he that is washed, luo, needeth not save to nipto his feet. Okay, wash his feet, cleanse his feet. Small little cleansing, but is clean all over. And you are clean, but not all of you. After he'd washed their feet, okay, in verse 12, uh, in verse 14, if I have washed your feet, verse, uh, and again, you ought to wash one another's feet. And then the last verse I have here, uh, 1 Timothy 5.10, well reported for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet. So you see how these two different words mean two different things? One of them is like a big old bath, and the other one is just like a, you know, little sponge bath for your feet, okay? Or your hands, or your face. And so when Jesus says, in verse number 10, he that is washed, bathed, completely clean, doesn't need to do anything except maybe wash his feet once in a while, or wash her hands in today's vernacular. But it's clean all over, and you all are clean, except not all of you. Okay? Turn the page. Oh, boy. All right. So after he had washed their feet and taken his garments and was sat down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you? You call me Master and Lord, and say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. Now, this could be taken literally, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's churches that have times where they wash one another's feet. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think that there's more to it than just saying, you guys ought to wash each other's feet once in a while. Okay? It's more the idea of you guys ought to serve one another once in a while. And not just serve one another, but serve each other in a way that's humiliating, if I can say it that way. Washing somebody's feet is a humiliating act of service. Getting down on your hands and knees and cleaning somebody's grimy, nasty foot with, you know, bunions and all, okay? And so uh, when he says you ought to do this to one another, it's not only saying that you ought to, you know, wash each other's feet, but I think that's mostly a symbolic gesture, symbolizing the idea that you guys need to serve each other. You guys need to care for each other just in the same intensity that I have cared for you in this way. For I have given you an example you should do as I have done unto you. Verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. How many of you guys want to be happy? I think, we all, I think we all do, okay? We all like to be happy. I'd like to be happy. i got both hands in the air, okay? Um, the word happy here, though, is not the best understanding of biblically what this means. A better translation here would be blessed are you if you do them. You see, the word, um, mar, uh, let's see here, makarios can mean happy or fortunate in classical Greek, okay? So, like, outside of the Bible, this word makarios could mean happy, right? But the English word happy is related to the word hap or happen, like happenstance, you know? Things that happen cause you to be joyful, you know? And so it's kind of like uh, fortune or, or, or joyfulness based on uh, luck. This is not what Jesus is communicating. You're really lucky if you do this. No. Uh, a more biblical understanding would be the idea of you're going to be blessed of the Lord, okay, in one way or another. You'll be blessed if you do this um, by serving others. And then he says in verse 18, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. 
Okay, Psalm 41.9 is the quotation here that Jesus is quoting as being fulfilled prophetically in this night because Judas, the one that was going to betray him, uh, was um, there eating bread with him. Now I tell you before it come that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Jesus hasn't revealed any specifics yet, but he says, I'm going to tell you this before it happens so that you know uh, that I am speaking the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, before I go any further, um, this statement here in verse number 20, uh, the beginning of it, is very familiar to us. All throughout the scripture we have this, verily, verily, I say unto you. Verily, verily. You know, verily, verily. Um, and those statements are like great gospel truths, usually having to do with salvation. But he's going to say this, and then he's going to say something else in verse number 20, 21 that um, carries the same weight of it, but it's not, a, it's not the same kind of a statement that's usually made when Jesus says, Verily, verily. Here in verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. So this is another dimension upon what Jesus has been talking about in chapter number 12. Okay, um, that if you reject me, you're rejecting the Father. But if you accept me, if you believe in me, you're trusting in my Father. He says here, if I send you, those that accept you, accept me. And then he says, uh, when he had said thus, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, and here's the statement, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. Do you get that? Okay. They doubted of whom he spake. Who of any of these guys in here could possibly betray Jesus? How could that possibly happen? I mean, not, not, not Judas, not Bartholomew, not, you know, Peter, not John. Um, they were doubting of who would be the one that would fulfill this. Now, in verse number 21... When it says he was troubled, that literally means stirred up inside. Like, you ever have like anxiety or trouble or fear just kind of like rise up in you? Okay, where your spirit is troubled? That's how Jesus felt right here. He's about to die in less than 24 hours and he knows it. And he's troubled. He's God in the flesh. He's, he's, he's the creator. And yet being a man, he's experiencing the same things that we experience. Okay? He's troubled in his spirit because of what is about to take place. The disciples looked, and they were doubting of whom he spake. Nobody, nobody, nobody pointed the finger at Judas. Okay? Nobody expected him. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. Okay, a sop is the idea of a morsel that's dipped into some kind of a sauce or a stew um, made up of various spices. And he, he, he dipped it and he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, in John's Gospel, and I have this diagram here which by process of elimination is probably pretty accurate with these four people. In John's Gospel, it says that John rested his head on Jesus' chest. 
So we know that John sat next to him. It's kind of hard to do that if you're across the table, okay? Um, Judas actually sat in one of the most important seats, the one on the left of the master. Now, in biblical supper, and we have one of our, our, our staff members here, that his expertise is the biblical supper. He did a, a demonstration for us right in this very room. And there was common places where the guest of honor would be sat, where the host would be sat, you know, and it went down the line to, you know, unfortunately, from the, wor from the, from the best to the worst, you know, um, the place of least honor, um, the worst seat in the house, so to speak. And so because of the way that things transpire and Jesus giving the morsel to Judas and nobody else realizing that there was anything to out of the ordinary with Jesus giving it to Judas, it means that Judas was almost for certain sitting to the left of Jesus, almost for certain, um, because he would, be the, he would have been normally the first one to receive the honored, you know, first dipping of the bread. And so, the Bible also says that John and Jesus talked about Judas being the traitor, okay, um, at one point, and that no other disciples could hear them. And by the way, before Jesus makes the uh, next statement in verse number 27 to Judas, Judas asks in, a sincere, in, in an insincere way, Master, is it I? Okay, that's in Matthew. Um, but that's happening right here in between verse 26 and 27, after Jesus gives the morsel to Judas. We know uh, also that Peter sat at the other end of the table, since we know Peter and John talked quietly without any of the disciples hearing them, verses 28 and 29, which we'll read in a, in, a, in a minute. If this diagram is true, Peter has the worst seat, which he may have voluntarily chosen after the foot washing argument he gave Jesus. Yes? Yes, he was. And so according to Da Vinci, you know, they're all posing for the camera, like, okay, guys, look at the camera. We're all on the same side of the table. <laughs> That's not at all how it was done. Uh, and there's a number of things on top of that. Normally, uh, their tables were not like this, okay? They basically didn't have chairs. They didn't have benches. They didn't have seats. What they had was sometimes referred to as a couch, okay? And it was basically a number of pillows or like a mattress. And I think in India, it's still normal for them to eat in this way. Um, people in Japan, in a formal setting, uh, would follow this same pattern, eating on a very low table, okay? And the place settings is deliberate and important because it shows the order of honor. Um, but normally, and even here, this is a little bit different. Normally, the table, and this is kind of weird for us to understand, but normally in a, in a big biblical supper meal like this, the table would actually be in like a U-shape, okay? I don't know why necessarily. Maybe it was so that the person that would be serving could come down the middle and give everybody their, their stuff, okay? Um, but either way, whether the table was a rectangle like this or the actual table was kind of like a, a, a U-shape, okay? Um, the seating arrangement would have been similar to this, okay? Kind of going around in a circle. And usually when we uh, have meals, we have something similar to that, don't we? We have like the head of the table, right? We're like, you know, we have Thanksgiving, the patriarch of the family sits there or whatever, you know? 
with his queen beside him, <laughs> you know, and we have, the, we have a, a certain way that we do things. It's just normal for us. Same thing for back then, except the way that they had it was different. Now, with those things in mind that I read, and with this diagram here next to you, let's look at those verses again in verse 23, okay? Um, now, keep in mind, verse 22, the disciples, they're, they're, they're like, who is it? Who could possibly be the one to betray Jesus? And then, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, okay? So, John is next to Jesus. Simon Peter beckons to him, okay? So, picture this, picture this arrangement here, okay? John and Peter are right across from each other on the end, okay? Peter's like, Peter's like John, John, ask him who he's talking about, <laughs> you know? Um, and Peter's being Peter. He wants to know. He wants to, you know, but he's not, he, he's not being extremely vocal. Now, one interesting thing that I heard somebody say. According to the Catholics, who's the first pope? Peter, okay? So it's interesting that Peter had to go through John to get to Jesus, right? He had to just be like, John, give him a message for me, <laughs> you know? I don't know, it's just kind of funny. So he asked John to ask Jesus who it is that should betray him. Then he lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Okay, so imagine this. Peter's over there. John, John. And John's just like, what, Peter? He's like, ask him who it is. And then, you know, John leans back over. Who is it? And then Jesus tells John, okay? This is not an announcement to the whole crowd. Jesus tells John. He answers John, because John's the one that asked the question. He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. Okay? None of the other guys heard this. None of them. Okay? Because Jesus and John were right next to each other, Peter was likely across, Judas was likely to the left of Jesus, being the first one to normally receive the sop. Okay? Um, verse 27. Uh, okay, he gave, he gave the sop to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, end of verse 26. Verse 27. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Verse 2 showed us that Satan had already put in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Now, Satan enters him. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. Do you get that? Jesus gave the morsel to Judas, and he said that thou doest, do quickly. And nobody thought a second thought about it. Oh, he's just going to get some stuff for the feast. He's just going, he's got to buy something. You know, we ran out of something. He's got to go... They had no idea because they did not hear the conversation between Jesus and John. Secondly, the verse in Matthew where Judas says, Lord, is it I? And Jesus says, thou hast said. Okay? Jesus tells Judas. That's not something that's like broadcasted to the multitudes of people in the room. Judas is immediately to the left of Jesus. Lord, is it I? Thou hast said that thou doest do quickly. You know, and, and, and so these things are not how we would normally think of them transpiring if we don't read closely uh, what's being said. All right, I'm on the last page. We'll get through it quickly, okay? For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, remember Judas was the treasurer, he was the one with the money, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. When Jesus said, that thou doest do quickly, they're like, oh, 
He's, he's gone out to buy some, you know, roast beef or something. He's gone out to buy some, uh, some horseradish, okay? Um, they had no second thoughts about it. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night, okay? This is nighttime. Judas has left the room. This passage reinforces a few thoughts we have mentioned previously. Number one, the conversation between Jesus and John was not heard by anyone else. Number two, Judas had the outward appearance of someone who was completely trustworthy. Nobody had any kind of guess that, oh, he's the one. It should be observed also that Judas never saw another day. He kills himself before it's daylight. Okay? And so the fact that it says, he went out immediately and it was night, I mean, this is like an uh, ominous statement. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If, I be, if, if God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and, straightway, and shall straightway glorify him. Now this is another statement that's kind of tricky to work through. There is here the sense that Jesus is saying, this is it. Here we go. The first domino has been tipped over. Judas has left, and I know what he's going to do, and I told him to just go do it quickly. Um, now he will be glorified as the Messiah, as his atonement for us is imminent. From this very passage to the end of John 19, we're only in John 13, okay? From this very passage to the end of John 19, less than one day transpires. Throughout all those chapters, it's less than 24 hours' time. So there's a lot of uh, things described in that, uh, those passages. Jesus is about to die, and he knows it. The trouble that Jesus had in his spirit from verse 21 is likely still there. His Father will be glorified in and through him in their cooperative work of redemption. Jesus says that God will immediately, straightway, glorify the Son. So he's like, it's coming, okay? The moment you've all been waiting for is almost here. Verse 33, Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, and by the way, they're all Jewish, okay? He's speaking of the, I've mentioned before, the Udioi, the Jewish religious leaders. As I said to them, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is a new commandment. But how does it differ from Leviticus 19.18? Remember Jesus said, he's, they said, what is the greatest commandment? Good Lord, good, good, good master, what is the greatest commandment? Well, the first one is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus was quoting from Leviticus when he said, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The first one's from Deuteronomy. Uh, Leviticus 19.18, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against thy ch the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Here's what's different. The disciples were not merely to love one another as themselves. They were not merely to love their neighbor as themselves, but rather to love their neighbor, to love each other as Jesus loved them. How are we doing with this? Do you love others? Not like you love yourself, but do you love others like Jesus has loved you? That's convicting. It's a challenge right there. And then he says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, or where I go, thou canst not follow me now, 
but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can't I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And Jesus answered him and said, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. And so this is the end of John chapter 13. Some quick uh, points about Peter. He had misplaced zeal. I'm going to die for you, Lord. You know, he's the same one that shook Jesus and said, you're not going to die. I'll not forsake you. You're never going to wash my feet. He had misplaced zeal. And, and number two, he was fanatical and jumpy. Okay? He didn't sit and think. He, 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 he quickly jumped to whatever he wanted to say, whatever he wanted to do. Which can be a good thing, but in this instance, Peter doesn't have the Holy Spirit within him. And uh, he's flipping back and forth, which is number three. He was one to quickly flip-flop with great intensity. Lord, I'll trust you. Lord, I'll help you. Lord, I'll die for you. Lord, you're not going to die. Be it far from thee, Lord, he said in Matthew 16. He wasn't stable. His emotions caused him to proclaim and yet later deny his allegiance. So his same emotions, his emotions of zealousness and you know, excitement, joy, caused him to proclaim, Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And yet, in a little bit here, as Jesus prophesied, Peter's going to deny him through the same emotions. Fear, excitement, you know, whatever it is, all those things just boil to the surface with Peter. He wears his emotions on his sleeve. Then lastly, we will see soon some amazing contrast between Peter and John. Okay? Any questions or comments or discussion before we close in a word of prayer? I don't know how much like an auctioneer I sounded, but tried to slow it down a little bit. <laughs> okay? All right, well, I'll go ahead and pray, and uh, then we'll have some, some goodies. Thank you, Lord, so much for this night. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for everything that he has done for us. I pray, Lord, that we would take even just one or two things from this, this chapter, and uh, that you would help us to apply them to our lives. We pray for the refreshments that have been provided. We thank you for that. And we just pray you give us a good rest of the night tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.